so am I hearing you correctly say that the Pope, repre- if you are a Christian, the Pope represents you whether you like it or not? That is correct. Yes. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, big question that I have for you today is this has to do with the death of the Pope or a Pope. And for the people who aren't Catholic, which I'm not, what what is the significance of this? So we can kind of answer this in two ways. So the significance of this for Catholicism, but then also for the rest of us, so to speak. I mean, obviously, somebody who has massive global recognition, there's that element to it. But I guess culturally, theologically, symbolically, other some kind of other ology, what do you see happening here that would give, let's say, Protestant evangelical the reason to say the Pope died and you should care about it because of fill in the blank? Well, firstly, I think probably you'd have to say because the Pope is one of the most significant, from a global standpoint, representatives of the church, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of, especially for those who are not Christians, by the way, you know, when they when they look at the church, you know, we're speaking, you know, you know, the the church as a whole in sort of abstract terms, they look to they would many would look to the pope as a key representative, and so from that standpoint alone, I think you want to take stock of the current pope. You want to know about what they think you may you may want to familiarize yourself with okay hang on a second every now and then yeah yeah but but so uh, so am i hearing you correctly say that the pope rep- if you are a christian the pope represents you whether you like it or not that is correct yes now and again i'll bring in i know that many who we have a wide, we have a broad listenership some of you may be catholic some of you may oh, for sure. may not, and some of you may have for strong sure. reservations about that. For we sure. know that there's yeah, we know there's a spectrum. <laughs> That's everybody. <laughs> yeah, and we know that there are some people who have some very serious scruples about Catholicism. But yes, very obviously, if you just take a step back and you think about those outside the church, and even those who ha- who are relatively biblically illiterate don't know that much about about Christianity. If you quiz, if you quiz your average person and say, what how would I learn about the church? Who would be one of the key representatives? I think some of them might say, well, I, I don't know, the Pope? So there is that. Now, this is a very instrumental and kind of clinical way of answering your question. So let me speak specifically about Pope Benedict XVI, whom we've just lost. He was, he was I think he was 95 years old. Up there. He's a pretty unique Pope in many ways. He, he So he was the, one of only a handful to abdicate. Some of you will remember this. The papacy, and I think he was the first to do so in six hundred years. So, so was he technically time. Pope Emeritus? Is that how they? I mean, you're not still the Pope. I'm so not sure what. The, I think yeah, I, I'm I not think sure what the designation is. Stuck on there somewhere. Right. So he, but he spent the rest of his days in in Rome, working as a essentially as a you know serving the church as a scholar. So one of the one of the distinctives of of you know. His other, you know, Carl, you know, his his name was also Joseph Ratzinger. That was his. That was his. He was German. First name. Mm-hmm. Lived through very tumultuous times. You know, saw this the Second World War, but also he was a key. He was a key person during Vatican II, 
which makes him very interesting. So yeah, he was holding, he held very strongly to traditional and really sort of some some of the he he was one of the the guys who stood against some of the more progressive strains. So he held the line, and this is why a lot of people have looked at him and actually said he's kind of one of the he's one of the favorite popes of Protestants. That was that's actually something that has been said of of Ratzinger mm. before that he was he was kind of a favorite of Protestants. And one of the reasons that said is if you actually read his writings, so his his books or some of his encyclicals, he was very he was a very strong voice against the onslaught of modernism. I mean, the great challenge for the Catholic Church in recent years has been the modern world. You have this ancient institution and this world that seemed to be just changing at such a drastic pace. This, I mean, that was really the crisis that occasioned Vatican II, if you have to mm-hmm. put it in general terms. But he, so Pope Benedict XVI was instrumental in standing firm for truth and in standing firm for the notion that we don't have to succumb to a relativistic outlook. We don't have to sort of fall in line with a superficial form of pluralism that really has very little to do with the actual celebration of difference. He was able to do that in a very sophisticated way, and he was able to push against some of those modernizing trends while also recognizing that we do have to make some concessions to the modern world. We probably shouldn't hold Latin mass anymore. Sorry to some of you who may who may <laughs> you know be fierce traditionalists there, but that was I think some of us would you know features like that which were so became so incredibly foreign and so incredibly incomprehensible to people to the point where you if I mean imagine attending a church service imagine imagine going to mass and you can't understand what the priest is saying. So ironically, he was a guy who who held firm to traditional Christian convictions, which made progressives annoyed. But he also made some concessions to the modern world saying, look, we, we do need to contextualize here. We do need people to understand what's going on. And so some of the fierce traditionalists saw him as a progressive as well. So that he kind of found himself <laughs> in the crosshairs like that. So that's those are some of the reasons he's an interesting person and maybe worth your time. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting position of leadership when you think about the diversity of the representation in the sense like right. we don't think about globalization theologically without thinking about Catholicism, but to to have a religious movement that aspires to uniformity from France to Guatemala to Boston is a very fascinating um, institution. And that's not quite the right word there, but I, I guess it's the closest thing. So that's that's a little bit of the the interest, I think, that the Pope also has, is that the Pope does sit in a position that is truly multinational and can easily be conceived of as truly global to some extent, where I think a lot of other adherents of sub parts of sub-denominations struggle to see their expression of faith beyond the country in which they live. And I'm curious, Nathan, I mean, you might have, I actually, I don't want to presume anything here. I'm wondering whether you ever take a look at encyclicals or whether you, you follow the Pope from a modest distance. Do you ever, 
I mean, is that something that's that's on on your radar as a Christian? Why or why not? I'm just curious mm, because again, yeah. there's going to be a spectrum here, and I think people are going to want to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. So no is the short answer to that. However, I would say that my interaction with Catholicism is much more at the individual and personal level. So I go to church with many people who used to be Catholic and have very strong feelings about, uh, well, we'll just leave it at that. Um, and then friends and family who are, um, Catholic, it, you, you never want to use the phrase Catholic to different degrees, but there are levels of intensity and curiosity and particularly around, um, like being in seminary and listening to those like evangelicals, um, becoming Catholic and perspectives on Vatican II mm -hmm. and a lot of those conversations. So I've, yeah, well, I mean, and so, uh, I shouldn't say that's totally, I have, um, um, Christopher West's Our Bodies Tell God Stories here on my desk, which is basically, um, which Pope was that? Is it John Paul? Um, his theology of the body. Yes. So that's John. Yes. yes so, just John okay. Paul. So okay. yep. there, there, I contradicted myself. So yeah, it's, it's maybe not as intentional. Um, I think also theologically, I, I probably have some biases baked into based off of the historic theology that I come from and its interaction with Catholicism. Um, you're talking about not saying Latin in mass. It's been a couple hundred years since the Catholic church ex executed people in my family for preaching in native languages. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, I mean, so some of these theological tensions, um, have blood on them as well in my, my long distant memory there, but I can see kind of how some of the, <laughs> the, the, the liberalizing force within Catholicism has been a net good for what I believe theologically in, in, in some ways. So, but at the same time, deeply appreciating, um, anything that can stand firm in strong cultural winds. I, I mm -hmm. also fascinated when I was in, um, working in the apologetic and Christian evangelism world in new England in like 2013 to 2016 and looking at a lot of people coming to faith. If they came from no Christian background, um, pretty quickly became Catholic or Orthodox just mm -hmm. because there was that craving for, if you're coming out of what you feel to be genuine postmodernism, you don't want, um, <laughs> you don't want to join something where it's like, well, what do you, how do you feel about it? Because that's what you feel like you're mm -hmm. being saved from. And so the ability to produce, um, history and tradition, um, formality, aesthetics, those are all big drawing factors, um, institutionally. So watching people wrestle within, um, and how they, how people choose to overlook some things within that system. Um, and then just the wide variety of folks that, uh, fall under that umbrella is, is interesting too, including a, an interesting, and I don't know if this is a modern thing, but it seems new that you have Catholics who are sure that part of being Catholic is there being a diverse way of being Catholic. And so that seems like a new category of Catholicism to me from what's written on paper to how people think about themselves as Catholic. So I don't know if I answered your question, but there are some thoughts. You did. And one, one of the interesting points of difference between the two of us is our just actually just concerns our backgrounds. So you, you've lived in America your whole life mm -hmm. and, but we, so here's where we're similar. Both Nathan and I grew up in the church as, as Christians had the tremendous blessing of being raised in Christian households. The legacy of faith in Nathan's home <laughs> extends back quite a bit further than, 
than mine. My my mom and dad were both converts in their early years. But I, of course, benefited from their <laughs> their conversion and they raised me. They raised me as a Christian. But I I grew up in Europe on, on the mission field and Nathan grew up in America. So one of the interesting points of difference is I was in a very secular setting from the day I was born. We were, you know, we're missionaries over there. And the, the way Catholicism was viewed among the, the, the Christians there in our small, you know, missionary circles was very different than, than it is here in, in North America. So the, the kind of, there are certain places where you, where you'll go and in, you know, theologically conservative evangelical circles say. And I would say there's a pretty pronounced suspicion <laughs> against mm-hmm. Catholicism. But in in my setting though, in so in Austria at that point, it was much more ecumenical almost by default because the the Christian population in a country like Austria was at the time 8 million people. So this this is a tiny nation. A fraction, a tiny little fraction of those would have been Christians. And so mm-hmm. whatever Christians you found, you worked together and you, you, you know, it was a, it was a joint effort. And I, my dad, who was at the time, the general secretary of the European Evangelical Alliance was doing work with the Austrian archbishop of the Catholic church. And that was a wonderful experience. He was a lovely, he was a lovely man and they did some really good work together. But the other aspect that I want to, that I want to bring out here, Nathan, cause I think this is, this is going to be key in the changing kind of the dynamic, the changing dynamic of US culture, as it gets as it gets a little darker here, that and as the church gets viewed with more and more suspicion and less less patience, let's just put it mildly, I think Catholicism is going to become a lot more appealing to many people. It is becoming a lot more appealing to many people because as I have a friend, this is a friend of ours, we both know him, Jonathan says, Hi, Jonathan. The Catholic Church actually looks like an alternative. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a little bit of what you were getting at earlier, Nathan. I think you know you you come from if if you you're in a place where the cultural winds are are blowing very strongly. There's there's a lot of confusion, a lot of disintegration. You want something that has that stability and looks rock solid, but also looks very different. Mm-hmm. So I think if if somebody's Somebody just says, I'm a Christian, it runs the risk these days in, in North America of sounding very generic. Okay, well, what does that mean? Every, I mean, everybody's a Christian. You know, what, what, that's why I think one of the big questions is what, is, what do Christians do? If somebody says, I'm Catholic or I'm a devout Catholic, you have some very definitive notions in your mind mm-hmm. now about what this person does. They go to Mass. They, they, they go to confession if they're good Catholics, right? So I, I think those are some... I think those are some really interesting factors. I mean, I, I even when I was in a grad program where I had some Catholic professors, I mean, I saw, I saw a fair share of my fellow classmates convert to Catholicism because of some of these very issues. So I thought I think that's where it's worth bringing that into mm-hmm. the discussion here, also, Nathan. Yeah. So one of the fascinating things, though, is that the Catholic Church has also continued to exist with that perception, despite some crazy, crazy history and scandals. Sure. Um, yeah. and so there, and there's very a, recent scandals, of course, very recent too. Yeah, yeah. So it's, that's just interesting. But another thing I was thinking about while you're saying that, like thinking of friends in college who were Catholic, who didn't believe in God anymore, but very much felt the need to continue being Catholic and going to mass, which was a strange mm. 
because of the aesthetics and the repetition and the comfort of the routine and a place of like, I know exactly what's going to happen when I walk in. Um, that you don't get that from um, <laughs> non-denominational, you know, twenty-one-year-olds. You, you know what I'm saying? And so, so there is a there is a a um, a, a structural sense of buy-in and routine. And man, many would say the beauty is it's not just like you know what's going to happen at your local um, church, but anywhere in the world you go. And so, I think a lot of the people, I think if I was Catholic, I would lament the loss of Latin. Because that is kind of a cool feature that I could go to any church anywhere in the world mm-hmm. and know what to say and do. And I mean, I did attend Catholic churches, some for curiosity and some for assignments at different phases of theological education and uh, talk to and observe and hang out at monasteries and um, try to get a feel for it. So there's there's a sense in which I guess you and you would know this better than I do in the ecumenical sense of it, of it always seemed to me that there was a deep differentiation kind of between Catholic laity and what they theologically were pursuing. And then maybe like when I read stuff, I'm like, Oh, that, yeah. So it it seems like there was a disconnect maybe between Catholic theology as it's like written by the Pope. And then as it's experienced and lived out by, and that's probably true of any church or denomination. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or religion for, for that case. So I think like, I don't have any, Catholic friends or family that I think think I'm going to hell because I'm not Catholic. So, I mean, that's standard Catholicism. If you're not part of the church, you're damned. But I don't think most people that I know kind of like live that out or or feel that for me in, in the same mm-hmm. way. So that's what I'm kind of pointing to in the sense that like, even for a lot of Catholics, the okay, so this doesn't even make sense to say this. Um, this is where we need some Catholic friends to help us out. But there, there's a sense in which there are like Catholics that are more Catholic than the Pope. Like you hear that joke, right? Mm-hmm, but that's sure. literally true that there are people who think like the Pope has lost his way in modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are people who say like, yeah, here's what the Pope says, but there's some variation within Catholicism about how that actually gets worked out. And and to me, that seems like an interesting modern. I mean, so you've always had your division of like types of monasticism. But the way in what, and maybe that's a, just an American version of Catholicism, and yeah. I haven't run up against the, the the international sense of it in the same way. Well, no, there I have a whole lot of thoughts thoughts to that because so David Bentley Hart, who is not Catholic, he's Orthodox, but he he makes he made a really important point in a lecture that he gave on the future of Orthodoxy in America. But this would apply to Catholicism as well. But basically, he he points to the unique American, what do we want to call it? Alchemy, <laughs> transmutation. I don't tendency <laughs> to take ancient to take whatever comes into its mix and remake it in its own image, and so that has. And so he he was basically saying this happening to the Orthodox Church in North America is all but inevitable. Certainly, that's the case with with Catholicism. I mean, a, a number of other theologians have pointed that out as well. Stanley Hauerwas has pointed out that the Catholic Church in America is very distinctly the American Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So that is, yeah, that's a factor of the tremendously seductive culture that is that is America on the one hand, and because it's different, there are other 
You know, other nations, we've talked about, I mean, a striking contrast would be a theocratic nation where whatever, you know, whatever the religious rule that exists is enforced. That's, there's real power in that, obviously, for better or for for much worse. But then there's also, there's the tremendous insidious power of seduction. And that's where America rules supreme in, in seduction. Yes, and, that's interesting. Well, hang on. Before yeah. you go on there, can I can I ask because Catholicism has, in some ways, specialized in syncretism. Um, if you look at a lot of mm. its practices and where it's picked up and how it's adapted itself subculturally around the world, um, sure. in fact, that would be one of the places I think where sometimes even evangelicalism would be critical of saying, "Yeah, you're kind of just taking over ideas in the area and adding your own, you know, Christian flavor to them." And people could be critical of crusades and missions and all that and and some of that is a bit simplistic but yeah if you try to like any sort sort of theological syncretism with an american ethos is inherently oh do i want to say that i almost want to say it's inherently unique like to try to hybridize whatever it is that america produces with a global religion it's it, yeah, it seems like that's inter- not something that you can quickly subsume into your structure. Sure. Right. But here's the interesting. So the, to, this is back to the remark you made earlier that, you know, you know, you know, some people who have long since ceased believing in God, but feel the need to continue going to mass and going through those rituals. But that's also I, I don't think that's restricted. And I don't think you would say this either to the to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the you know, look. I'll let you do the math. I'm not going to name the. I'm not going to name names, but there, there is a sizable church in Atlanta with a very well-known pastor, and I, I know that many of the people who go to that church are not believers, and certainly don't live as believers. But they go there because because of the. Now it's a very different set of rituals. <laughs> it's it's funny <laughs> to, to to use liturgy in conjunction with churches that have fog machines and you know worship bands that sound a little bit like you too and or Coldplay, but. Nevertheless, it's still there, and there are very encouraging and sometimes practically helpful motivational messages from from the pulpit. So, but people go there just because it's a community, because they feel invited in, because they like the music. I mean, a number of and so a lot of people, you know, Alain de Botton. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. French philosopher. He he talks about a lot. He's an atheist, but he talks a lot about the aesthetic appeal of religion, which is actually very easy to understand. I mean, the marvels of, of architecture and Catholic churches. Mm -hmm. And if you like the music, I mean, you know, even Bach's St. Matthew passion. I mean, my goodness. So you, you have, you have, I mean, there is a, there's a draw there. What's, what's unique to the modern world is that people can latch on to some of those aspects and see them as nothing more than fashion statements or nothing more than, you know, the same kind of, I mean, the notion that you would go to a church for the same reason that you would go to a museum is very modern to me. That's a, that's a strikingly Mm -hmm. modern thing to do rather than to go there to worship the living God. But I don't, but I still, where I think Catholicism has a distinct edge here in, in North America is that it's still, for all of that, it still looks very, very different and very strange and alien. Well, okay. So hang on. So we're saying, so you we're seeing that and saying that's a good thing. 
But let's yes. scroll back not so many decades in mm-hmm. which there was massive Catholic persecution in our country. I mean, like, right. let's not yeah. skip over that whole. No. Yep. So let's just name that for all of our Catholic amigos listening in on that. We we recognize that history of the being different to the degree of severe superstition. Yes. Um, yes. About how, yeah, or what's going on. So, yeah, I don't know that we need to go into that, but I want to acknowledge no, that. No, but it absolutely needs to be mentioned. Yep. Um. So, yeah, well, let me let me loop back around. So let's take how how then I'm not, I still haven't answered my question of how I engage with Catholicism. Um, I would say, all right, let's look at Charles Taylor, for example. Mm-hmm, I would say sure. Charles Taylor is massively influential as sort of bedrock foundational pillars of some of the structural analysis, of the way in which you and I think at least is, yep. sociologically about religious epistemology in the 21st century. And he lays a huge amount of the blame on the Reformation. Too. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I, I guess, so how do I, so I think I approach it with, um, a, a deep sense of understanding for people who have like, I'm out of here. This is crazy. I'm bouncing. Okay. I get that. Also though, I'm not too knee jerk about that either and have a deep sense of respect and appreciation for a lot of what, not only yeah. is developed there, but what is maintained there. So mm-hmm. in some ways, the the Catholic Church does act as a bit of a seller theologically of some good ideas that need to be preserved long term. And I would say one of the advantages that Catholicism has is Catholics are better at naming concepts and ideas than any other group of people I've ever run mm-hmm. into. Yeah. Like yeah. part of it is because they've been working out stuff theologically for knocking on two millennia here. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So, so 1600 years at least. Um, so there, so there's an advantage there where you're not going to probably be able to do theology well anytime in the future without engaging Catholic thinkers using Catholic, um, inspired vocabulary and terminology, and at least using them as a deep conversation partner. And yeah, you you don't want, you don't want to do away with Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) Yeah, sure. You, you might want to deeply disagree with him on a lot of things but you don't want to skip over it lightly. Yeah. And I, and I, again, to bring it back to, you know, the, you know, the late Pope Benedict the 16th, once again, the, the, the major tensions that we've pointed to that we, that we confront as Christians and as believers, but that an ancient institution like the Catholic church confronts in the modern world, this man stood at right at the center of those and wrote very eloquently and forcefully and powerfully and compassionately about them. So, and now that he's now that you know he's gone, it's a good time to revisit him. I think he's he's left a he wasn't a perfect man by any means, but he's left a, a worthy legacy, and certainly a man worth worth being honored. And I would say I would highly recommend his writings to you. I've benefited from them, and mm-hmm. yeah, very. And also, yeah, Nathan's so right to point out that a lot of the key modern philosophers who have influenced us deeply happen to be Catholic: Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre. My goodness. I mean, I, in some ways, I don't know where my, where, yeah, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't be here without their thinking. So can I, can I say something here, Cameron, just to make this very clear to our listeners? And I think this is one of the things that sets thinking out loud apart. It would be my hope. Um, because, hey, when we worked for RZIM, do you remember we would get hate mail if we quoted Catholics sometimes? <gasps> Absolutely. Can't believe. Yep. I mean, so there was a deep sus- theological suspicion. And sometimes on some categories, that is, rightly so but here's the thing i'm saying it's 
the wisdom to sort out stuff from the context of the person, you know, if we, it's, it's funny, like if you quote, um, I don't know, pick an atheist, um, who Bertram says something Russell. true. Yeah. <laughs> so say you quote something from Russell, that's true. You're, you're much more likely to get a pass on that than if you quote somebody from a theological tradition that somebody else disagrees yeah, with. Isn't that sad? <laughs> so it's kind of, kind of interesting. So I've said it lots of times. I'll say it again as a little bit of a recap here that I think the way that, well, the way that Cameron and I operate when it comes to reading and quoting source material. And I, and I would guess that if you've stuck with our podcast long enough to get to this point, um, although it's just the second one of the year, um, is that I think of like quotes and books and streams of intellectual influence, sort of like most people think about a grocery store. Like you go in there and there's stuff that's nutritious and beneficial and there's stuff in there that too much of it will kill you. So, you know, <laughs> walk into pick your favorite grocery store name brand Publix. We'll go with Publix for Cameron, right? <laughs> there's stuff in there that's good. Um, and there's stuff in there that's not good. And so for me, I go in and I think this is stuff that's healthy and it's good for me to consume. Here's stuff that's unhealthy and it's not good for me to consume. And here's a bunch of stuff that I can produce better on my own. And so this, the same thing happens for me as I'm reading. If I look across the book scattered on my desk, there's probably zero of them that I'm like, yes, I agree 100% with everything that's in every one of these books. It's just craziness. So there's healthy stuff in all of them. There's unhealthy stuff in all of them that I look at and I reject stuff that I choose to um, meditate on and grow from. And then other stuff where I'm like, you know what? I got a better version of this um, from my reading of scripture. And so, and, and time meditating on that. So I think when you as a listener hear us, and I hope that this is true in your life, that you have the confidence in your own theological filtration that being renewed by, you know, the being transformed by the renewing of your mind kind of thing of what we're taking in and what we're putting out, that a big part of being a human in a digital age is being able to engage and grow from what is good and leave behind that which isn't and sort all of that out. And so I think um, that's how we could be people who aren't going to become Catholic, but can have a lot of respect and appreciation for people within that tradition who have um, been faithful, written well, and and sought to serve the Lord within that. So um, yeah, just a little thought there for clarification if you're wondering how we sort that all out. Yes, and we certainly haven't sorted all of this out for you on this episode, but our goal, is again, is to get the wheels turning. And I would a modest goal of mine would be that some of you might read some of Ratzinger's works. Maybe some of you have already. But thank you for sticking with us here for the second episode of the new year. And we know many of you have been with us for a long time. Thank you once again for your encouragement, your prayers, and for your financial support. It makes all of this possible, and we are deeply grateful. But in case you missed it, you're listening to Thinking Out Loud, a, th a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.